Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And that's why I think chapter 3 is so important. Uh, That we have to place all of the things that we talked about in chapter 2 in the sense of living out of the story. And I'm going to try to make this section much less corny than the title might lead us to otherwise believe that it would be. Uh, But entertain a playful question with me for a moment. If you could pick a love story that you most wanted your marriage to fit the mold of, what would it be? Cinderella, Pretty Woman, Snow White, Titanic, Gone with the Wind, It's a Wonderful Life, Sleepless in Seattle, Grease, please no. Um, Just being real. Uh, Jerry Maguire, uh, Dirty Dancing, Princess Bride. What would be the story? Um, I had a friend of my wife say, you know, all chick flicks are the same. The guy does everything that the girl wants to win her attention. She completely gets to be a guy. The world revolves around her. I'd say all dude flicks are the same too. Uh, the girl does everything that the guy wants to get his attention, and the guy gets to be a god. Um, and again, I'm not against a romantic comedy or that kind of thing, but I think the, the dangerous part of these ideal love stories is that we become the center of our love story. And everybody else, including God, becomes a supporting actor. Doesn't He want me to be happy? Isn't this what He wants from me? And the story is no longer about Him and the Gospel and His glory and our enjoyment in that. But we become the center. And that doesn't go away when we get married. We try to make our forever relationship into the happily ever after we've been crafting all of our life. And that's why the words from Paul Tripp are so important. He says it is vital to understand that the biblical story is the only story that can make sense out of the story of our life and your marriage. And so we ask the question, how does a story begin to take shape? And I think we can begin to see that in a media, in our media Something happens, a few images get put up on the screen, on the television, and both sides begin to vie for how they're going to define it. Whatever the two sides are on that particular issue, they they vie for the words that are going to define it. And that's not just a happening in our modern media age. It's a common human tendency. We all do that. We do that in our mind as we replay things over and over again and we give it a particular meaning. And you say, where do we do that? We do that in our self-talk. And we do it most often when things don't go our way. And that's what Tim Keller is alluding to when he says, only if you maintain your love for someone when it is not thrilling can you be said to actually be loving a person. And I would continue his thought, and and not just loving an experience, how they make you feel, 
or an ideal of what they could be if you let them make them let you make them into the plans that you have for their life. Yet, well, we ask the question: What does Scripture call this kind of self-talk thinking over and over again when we don't get things our way and we start to get upset about it? I think the word that Scripture would use is grumbling. Uh, grumbling is those sound bites that we would use to reinforce a non-gospel narrative around our marriage. And it's much more than just poor emotional hygiene. Now, I'm going to use grumbling in a, in a pretty broad sense here, so I want to define some different ways that we do it so you can hear it and catch yourself, and then we'll figure out how to replace it so that, so that we don't do that with what we've been learning. You know, one is grumbling proper. When I just rehearse all of the undesired things that I don't like about my day and my marriage and my life. And when I do this, those negative things become the main story. And everything else is just in the background. And we've all experienced this. We're in a bad, funky mood. And, you know, we're just, we don't even want to be happy. You know it. And somebody can tell us something that's true and relevant and timely. And our bad mood is in the front. And that whatever that is, is in the background. That's, that is where grumbling is allowing that negative story to be the main story. And any of God's blessings get lost in the background. Another way that that happens is a critical spirit where we rehearse all of the unmet expectations that we have for our spouse. And you may retort, well, things don't get better unless I, you, know, you address what's wrong. I kind of sort of agree. But I would begin by saying, no, but you can enjoy life that way. And we're going to come to what we do with those things that are wrong in just a moment. But I just want to caution us, because I think an event like this can really feed that. Because it, when we educate ourselves, when we find how good things can be, it is easy for us to become very critical when they're not there. In that sense, I would say experts are some of the most negative people that there are. Because they know what it ought to look like. And it is incredibly hard for them when it doesn't reach that. And we have to be on guard for that. Insecurity is another form that grumbling can take. When we just rehearse all of the things that we don't like about ourselves, and we, we begin to live as if God's love and the love of our spouse was in limited supply and based upon our performance. And in terms of where we want to go with, with this seminar, it is, it is huge that we not give in to that form of grumbling. Because all of the playfulness that we were talking about that lets you revel in and delight in the, the affection and intimacy with your spouse requires you giving yourself to their enjoyment of you. And that requires putting these other things out. And so in the same way that we are called as Christians to view ourselves as if Christ's righteousness were draped over us and we see ourselves the way that God sees us in the playful romance and intimacy 
we must be willing to surrender our insecurities and allow ourselves to be seen and see ourselves with the affection that our spouse places over us and just let go and enjoy that. And the grumbling of insecurity prevents that. And then there's the grumbling of depression and avoidance where we just rehearse that there is no hope. It wouldn't do any good if I tried anyway. And the more we give ourselves to that, the more passive we become and the less we do to enrich our marriage. And we begin to ask, if that's how the negative story is built, how do we get away from that? What's the alternative? And I think encouragement is going to be a big part of that answer. And and William Smith helps us see that. He says, the way that I live out my relationships with people is one of the clearest indicators of uh, how healthy my relationship with the Lord is. Encouragement is far more important than we often realize. It's an attitude that focuses more on the reality of what Christians are becoming rather than on where they are presently failing. And I think we, if we're going to say grumbling and encouragement, they're, they're opposites. I think I've got to defend that before that becomes clear to us. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that they have in common that allows them to be opposites? Because some things have to have something in common in order for them to be opposite. Like hot and cold. They're both temperatures. That's what they have in common that allows them to be opposite. East and west. They're both directions. That's what they have in common that allow them to be opposites. Good and bad. They're both moral. That's what they have in common that allows them to be opposites. And so we ask, grumbling and encouragement, what is it that they have in common that allows them to be opposite. And I would say, they are both forms of rehearsal that focus our attention on what we deem to be most important. When I grumble, I am rehearsing over things that I think are most important. It's building this story. When I encourage... I am focusing on the things that that I believe to be most important, and it's building a story. Um, Yet, um, and so I think it's out of that that we can hear how grumbling, how placing all of my focus on these negative things could put us in a position where these kinds of statements could be made. Uh, Scott Peck, um, in The Road Less Traveled, He's talking about a counseling relationship he had uh, with a lady. She said, I do not want to live. I cannot live without my husband. I love him so much. And he responded, as he frequently does, you are mistaken. You do not love your husband. I don't necessarily endorse this as a counseling technique, but just going with the quote here, it illustrates a point. What do you mean? Is the angry question. I just told you I cannot live without him. And he tries to explain what you describe is a parasite. You are living off of your spouse, not loving them. And and Gary Thomas, hitting on that same theme, says romantic love. And he's not talking about in the healthy sense. He's talking about when you use romantic love in the ways that we're saying this is not healthy and good, like we talked about those things at the end of chapter 2. He says romantic love has no elasticity to it. It can never be stretched. It simply shatters. And so I 
I want us to look at some things about encouragement as this other way of reinforcing a narrative that allows us to have the elasticity to go through good times and bad as we promised to do when we took our marriage vows. And the first thing about encouragement is that encouragement teaches that and that as I rehearse and focus on certain things, encouragement is teaching. And it teaches me before it teaches anything to my spouse. Because a prerequisite to encouragement is I have to be looking for those things that are good, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise. I have to be looking for those things in order to see them and have my attention drawn to them. And so because of that, encouragement is something that teaches and changes me long before it ever blesses my spouse. As I was thinking about this, it, it hit me in this way, and it really it, it brought this to life for me. Encouragement teaches me like a child learning their colors. Before a child learns their colors, they didn't live in a black and white world. Their world was filled with color. Learning their colors just helped them put it into words in a way that they could share it and talk about it and bless others and allow others to bless them. You know, my son loves the color yellow. I gave him mustard to go with his french fries. And he loves mustard now, not because it tastes good, but because it's yellow. Uh, and it just, that aspect of, it just allowed relationship to develop. Well, encouragement doesn't add to the blessing of God in my life. My world is full of the blessing of God. But encouragement, disciplining myself to have eyes to see it, it draws my attention to it in such a way that it becomes the main theme, the most important thing that I can share and develop relationship in and around that and be built up by it. That's how encouragement teaches. Encouragement also motivates. And it, just like with teaching, encouragement motivates me before it motivates my spouse. When I begin to see the goodness of God in all of these places, I begin to realize God doesn't just want things from me to bless my spouse as if I'm supposed to be some kind of robot who just gives and gives and doesn't have a soul of my own. That in what I'm doing, God is simply asking me to notice and to draw upon all of the goodness that is going on and to highlight and express that in a certain way that draws it out and fuels both me and my spouse. But also, it does encourage my spouse. If we go back to physics and kind of whatever law of thermodynamics it was that an object in motion tends to stay in motion. When I look at the places where God is active in my spouse's life. And I get behind that and I say, that is good. You know, oftentimes we think in terms of teaching and motivating and that kind of stuff, you've got to find what's wrong and correct it. Well, there's a plumb line that we use here at the church that I think we've got to use in our marriage. We replicate what we celebrate. Let me find those places where God is active in my spouse's life and just highlight it. I think that's part of the implication of Hebrews 10.24 where it says, Consider how to stir one another on with love and good works. That the encouragement infection of a marriage 
in many ways is every bit as discipling as praying and having a Bible study together. I mean, think of it this way. I would say one of the biggest things I can do in discipling my boys is to get in the floor and wrestle with them. Because relationship is the opportunity for influence. When they enjoy me and respect me and are bonded to me, they will hear me differently. That is true in every relationship. And so let the affection and affirmation and encouragement that motivates my wife and me, let us use that to stir one another on. Let me give you two vocal points for two focal points for this kind of motivation. One, affirm the full and balanced character of Christ in your spouse. Go to passages like Galatians 5 where there's the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about love. Philippians 2 where we see uh, a picture of Christ. Or Proverbs 31 of the virtuous wife. And, and write down all of the adjectives and attributes that you see there. And just go on a scavenger hunt. Look for all of them. Because I think most of us, in the midst of the busyness of life, we tend to become affirmationally lazy. We just affirm those things that we enjoy most. And that's the kind of warning that C.J. Mahaney was giving when he says, take careful note, men. And I think there's a flip side of this for women. That these compliments are not merely physical. Uh, if, my, if my words, if my encouragement, if what I am pointing you towards has that much influence, let me do it in a way that is seeking and highlighting every evidence of the full character of Christ as I do that. And a second focal point. Affirm those qualities and interactions that are unique to your marriage. What are the ways that your spouse cares for you that nobody else does? My wife is immensely gifted in administration. And so I try to remember regularly to say to her, thank you for all of the things I never have to think about. There's just so many things that I never have to think about in my day. And that is such a blessing. Thank you for loving me when I am too tired to be productive. You know, my reputation is somebody who, at least I think, is somebody who gets a lot done. And oftentimes, when I come home, I'm tired. Again, I should not regularly be too tired to give to my family, but there are times when I'm physically and emotionally spent. And she loves me in my weakness in a way that few other people get to if I have the courage to allow her to see that uh, and to thank her for it. Uh, what are the aspects of your spouse's character that you get to see that few other people do? Yeah. You know, I'm probably the only one who gets to see when one of our boys is sick and throwing up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And then they wake up for breakfast. And my wife is fixing them something that would be gentle on their stomach, even though she's tired. And I get to see that kind of motherly care. I'm probably the only one who gets to see that when we move to Raleigh-Durham in the midway point of my eldest son, kindergarten year, and all of the mama guilt that comes along with that in the way that she would encourage and, and be strong in it, 
I'm one of the few people who get to see that. And so off of that, let me give you an image that I think just makes these moments much more sacred. And I'll do it in the form of a question. Why is it that people climb Mount Everest? Why is it that people go into the depths of the rainforest? What is it that took men to the moon? I think it's a desire that we have to see something that nobody else has gotten to see and to experience that moment and to glory in it in a way that is a unique experience. I would say that happens on a daily basis in my home and your home. There are aspects of God's grace in my wife and kids that I am the only one with the privileged status who will get to see it. And if I don't praise it, nobody else will. It will go unpraised. And that is my special place. That is my honor. That is my privilege. That I should never see it as a burden or an inconvenience. But that I draw those moments out. And that's the kind of thing that we talk about encouragement keeping me in a gospel narrative. Immensely beneficial. Now we hear that and it would be really to end on that kind of crescendo moment. But we ask, what about those times that just aren't so grand? Um, And those usually comes in, in times that are hard. And I think David Pallison helps us see that. He says, when two people can speak honestly about their burdens and come together to a deeper understanding and love for one another, this is intimate stuff. The fine china of your spouse's life. When two people sorrow together, rejoice together, join together in a life task, the result is intimacy and closeness. And again, I just want to highlight again here, particularly how how encouragement reinforces a gospel narrative in the unpleasant parts of marriage. And I want us to use that that basic gospel paradigm, this kind of the story of Scripture, of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification, and try to highlight how encouragement can reinforce a gospel narrative in those times. And so we start with the theme of creation. And we realize that the expectation of a good marriage only makes sense in light of a good God. If we really lived in a survival of the fittest dog-eat-dog world, the thought of a good marriage, of people who would bless one another, is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And so I only want the kinds of good things that I could really enjoy because I'm made in the image of a good God if I were really the product of some survival of the fittest, predatory mindset, I wouldn't enjoy this. And so that's why I can enjoy love more than power, unity more than dominance, relationship more than isolation. So I begin by enjoying that. And I recognize it's not always the time. And that it doesn't always happen. And that's where the fall comes in. Those things aren't always true. And we tend to draw back. 
Either out of fear that my spouse is going to see that I'm not the perfect person I want to be for them, or out of um, you know, the sense of I'm going to be found out, or fear that they're going to hurt me. Um, but as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of sin. And it allows us to respond to sin differently. I would use this illustration. Um, imagine, you don't know the context, but I'm in a setting... I'm in a house of some kind. And some strange man in a mask jumps out with me with a knife. Well, if I'm in a haunted house, I'm going to scream like a little girl because that's what I do every time I get startled. And I'm going to be okay. Because I expect that. Don't know where it's coming from, but kind of walking, looking for it. If that happens in my home, I'm going to be traumatized if I survive. Um, Now, Because of what we believe about people, uh, we expect sin to happen and it allows us to respond to it differently. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve the presence of sin and we're not impacted by its implications. But it does mean that we recognize sin is not the final act. Outside of the Gospel, sin is the final act. Sin, what it does, it breaks relationships, it's harmed, it's broken, it's done, it dies. Within the Gospel, sin is only the second act of four. It's not the final chapter. The third chapter is redemption. And as Christians, we believe that there is a greater goodness in God's redemptive work than in any other aspect of creation. You know, as people, we can take good things and make less good things. Kind of what recycling and stuff like that is all about. We take a tree and we make paper. We take real paper and we make recycled paper, which isn't good for anything. Uh, You know, we can take good things and make less good things. God can take broken things and make things that are better than they would have been. And so that that causes us to ask the question of Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We get the answer of Romans 6, 2. By no means. Uh, That would revel in brokenness instead of celebrating redemption. But what we see is that God invites us into the redemption of the person that we love most. We, get to, we don't just have to watch and go, God, you're doing great things in their life. We get to be a part of it. And they get to be a part of that in our life. And that is better. The bond, the closeness is greater. And the fourth act is glorification. And if we stopped at redemption it would eventually become dissatisfying. You know, forgiveness, it can be pretty romantic. You know, we know the notion, fight hard, make up hard, we've experienced that, make up sex. I mean, we know what that's about. But the thought that you are going to have to perpetually be forgiven, that's discouraging. That's a turnoff. The Gospel doesn't leave us in the hamster wheel of redemption. That we see uh, that that redemption is coming. And, and I think for very sincere reasons, it's hard for us to see. It is, for us, you know, Scripture describes it as light and momentary struggles that we face. But that's kind of like a kindergartner thinking about what life is going to be like after college. We've been there. We know. We try to convince them you need to study because after college you're going to need to get a job. And they're like, huh? Uh, You know, but it 
That is kind of where we are in the struggles that we face. But I love the picture that C.S. Lewis gives in the Chronicles of Narnia. And you know you couldn't come to one of these without a Narnia reference from me. Um, but in his seventh book, as he's describing heaven, you know, he's written seven excellent books about this land of Narnia. And Narnia has come to a close and all of the characters are there and they're starting to experience heaven. And he says, everything that you've experienced was like the cover in the title page of everything that I intended for you. In the first three chapters, although they're all that we know, they are the short chapters before the long chapter. And so as our our part of conclusion here in terms of understanding the Gospel as the big narrative, uh, that is, it's not that we have to have some kind of theological labyrinth, massive amount of information. We really just need to hold on to two things tightly. One, the character of God. That God is good. And He wants good things for us. And so we look for those things. And the good things that are there are the gifts that He gives us and they're never meant to replace Him. And that's going to be really important when we come to sex in chapters 4 and 5 because that's one of His good gifts that we temporarily... Uh, frequently try to replace Him with. But when we believe that God is good, we trust Him and we look for those good things and that reinforces a narrative. And secondly, we need to know the simple truths of the Gospel. Because that's the story that's going to make sense of the good times and bad. So wrap up with this. Think back to whatever that story movie was that you thought this was the ideal story. Imagine that you watched it every day for a month. And I hope you have to imagine that and you haven't really done it, especially if it's Greece. Um, but imagine watching it every day for a month. It would lose its appeal. Um, it's only the Gospel that can keep the promise that it is new every morning. Because here is, here is our last thought. In order to have a romantic marriage or a satisfying sex life, it, it takes a story large enough to contain that. It is the romance, it is the story, it is the sense of goodness and blessing that life is going somewhere satisfying that allows those things to be enjoyed over the course of a lifetime. And I think we can thank God that we have those in the Gospel. So if you would, pray with me. Lord, we come to You. Uh, we thank You for this time. Uh, we thank You that we have from You what we need to enjoy marriage over a lifetime. Lord, we want to be really good at marriage. We want to do everything that we can to get everything out of marriage that You put into it. And we also want to see marriage as the picture of our relationship with You and never try to replace You with our marriage. Help us to do that and protect us from the dangers. In Your name we pray. Amen.